Hey, good morning. Take your Bibles out, please. We'll be there in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. We'll be looking at those four verses that were read this morning. Around this time of the year, at the beginning of the year, it's very common to see that Benjamin Franklin quote that you've seen floating around. Have you seen it? Be at war with your vices, at peace with your neighbors, and let every new year find you a better man. Fits in well with, with the New Year's wishes and, and things like that. But a, a friend of mine uh, sent that quote this year and, and was honest enough to admit that that wasn't quite how her life was going. She, she admitted that she was at peace with her vices and at war with her neighbors. And I thought, and I thought about how many people that might apply to. Well, I've, I've, I've come to a peace with my vices. I'm at war with my neighbors, and I'm going in the wrong direction. Not only am I not a, a better man, a better person, but I'm, I'm moving backwards. You know, Ben Franklin may have, have came up with that quote, may have said those words, but those were not his original ideas. Those ideas are all found in the New Testament and scriptures about being at war with our vices, at peace with our neighbors, and let every, every year find us a better person. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. This, this idea about being at war with our vices. You know, a, a vice, if I say, well, I have a few vices. That's a nice euphemism for what? For sin. I have a few vices, and, and it sounds better. It doesn't sound quite like sin. You know, with sin, we know the wages of sin is death, but everybody's got vices. When you think of a vice, though, what comes into your mind? What picture comes into your head? I think of two things, either a bench vice, where, where you crank something down and, and clamp it in there, or one of my favorite multi-tools, a vice grip. Uh, when, when you can't afford a bunch of other tools, if you have a vice grip, you can make it be a lot of things. I've used a vice grip as a hammer or a wrench, a, 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 anything that you can use it for, but I like the way it grips down and locks in there. If you think about vices, things which take hold of you, and if you think about this verse, in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. And we have a lot of different translations there. Mine says, sin which clings so closely. Some translations say, sin which so easily entangles or ensnares. It gets you. It's like a vice grip. You get tangled up in sin and it's got you and it's hard to get out of and it does entangle easily. I hated saran wrap when I was a kid. I hated it. I was a little boy, all thumbs. My mom would say, can you put some saran wrap on, the, on that dish? And I would tear it out and I'd end up with a little ball of plastic and throw that away. And it, it clings. It would cling to itself so easily. And then we'd buy the cheap stuff when I got married. I wouldn't stick to anything. Yeah, you'd lay it on top. It was like a piece of cardboard laying across the top. You couldn't, you'd have to tape it down with scotch tape. Sin is the good stuff. The saran wrap, the, the cling wrap that, that just clings to you. It just sticks to you. It gets on you. And it's hard to get off. Have you ever super glued your fingers together? I was trying to repair something for the kids. And, it, and when, when something that clings and it's sticky and it gets on you. And Paul talks about sin being like that. It's, a, it's like a vice. It so easily entangles. And, and he says, what do we do with it? It tangles us up. It gets on us. And just like Benjamin Franklin said, we ought to be at war with our vices. Paul says, lay it aside. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How should we strive against it? He says in verse 3, Consider him who endured 
from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted, how much? To the point of shedding blood. How hard should we strive to uncling ourselves, to untangle ourselves? Well, I tried, Lord, it just didn't come off. No, you know what Jesus says? You know the verse, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body, than, than that your whole body go into hell. Is Jesus promoting self-mutilation? No, but what, what is he promoting? Striving. The striving to get the sin away from you. Look, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and get it away from you. And I always tell people, and people are like, oh, that's, that's, really, uh, that's really extreme. No, no, it's not. I, I have a lot of friends. In fact, I, had a, I read a book by a guy. He said he was having a hard time with lust. And he said, this was back when uh, you'd go to the Blockbuster or, or, or Hollywood video to go rent a movie. He said, I quit renting movies. Because when I'd go in there, I'd scan the shelves. And he said, I had a hard time. I would find myself fixating on some of the covers on some of those movies that were inappropriate. He said, so I quit renting movies. Oh, poor guy. You mean you're never going to get to rent movies anymore? Better that you never rent a movie than that you go to hell because you've got a problem with lust you can't take care of. What if you've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend that you're seeing and you shouldn't be with them and they're a bad influence and they encourage you to do bad things or you've got a friend at work or you've got a job. What if you've got a job that is a bad influence on your Christianity? Brother, you'd be better off unemployed and going to heaven than having a great job and going to hell. Better off without that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that friend than to have that person in your life and go to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. It's better for you to get rid of something and even uses your eye, your hand, your foot. It's better for you to lose something valuable to yourself than to hold on to that thing and go to hell. Jesus never intended for us to get comfortable with our vices with our sin. He never wanted us to make peace with our sin and say, well, you know what? Everybody does it, so it has to be okay. The Bible calls us to be at war with our vices. Struggle. You haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Look in Romans chapter 6. Turn your Bible there, if you will. In Romans chapter 6, this battle, this war with our vices, how far should you be willing to go? I asked the class a couple of weeks ago, what does a, an animal do that steps into one of those traps, one of those claw traps, and it catches their foot in a snare, what will an animal do to get away? They will chew their foot off. They will chew off their foot. Why? Because they know that if they don't get out of that trap, they're going to die. Something instinctive. I, I've, I've got to get out of this trap. I'm captured. I'm going to get rid of it. It would be better for me to limp around with a foot missing than to die. Now, wouldn't it be a shame if animals were smarter than people? You got your arm caught in a sinful trap and you say, well, I, how am I ever going to get out of that? Well, Jesus says, if you need to cut your hand off, cut your hand off. If you need to pluck your eye out, pluck your eye out. If you can't handle having a computer, don't have a computer. If you can't handle cable, don't have cable. If you can't handle that boyfriend or girlfriend, don't have that girlfriend or boyfriend. If you can't handle it, if it has a negative impact on your Christianity, get rid of it. This is so contrary to what the world is teaching today. The world says... Hey, you just keep all that in your life and just let grace cover that. You keep your sin. You entangle in your sin. You let God worry about taking care of your sin for you. Yet we see in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15, Paul says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? 
Is that the conclusion? That we can just stay in that trap? That we can just get comfortable with our vices and our sins because of grace? What did Paul, the apostle of Christ, speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say? No. May it never be. By no means. As emphatic a Greek word as you can find for the word no. It is not so. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Paul says, don't you understand? Whoever you're a slave to, that's your master. He says, thanks be to God that you were, who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now isn't that interesting for a, a book that people say teaches salvation by faith alone. That Paul says, thanks be to God that even though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul says, I'm thankful to God that you used to live like this, but when you heard healthy teaching... You became committed to it. Paul didn't come and teach people and people say, you know what, I'm glad you taught me that what I was doing was wrong, but grace. Paul says, I'm thankful that you became obedient to that truth. If there is no grace, does it matter if you're obedient to the truth? No, you're just an obedient lost person. But when you combine the faith and obedience, when you have those two things together, it says, having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Who does Paul put that responsibility squarely on? You. <laughs> you used to do this. Now you need to do this. What, what do we call that change? What do we call that change from one thing to another? Talk about repentance and that, that change of life and that, that conversion, that transformation. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And then I like in verse 21, you know, sometimes we'll ask, sometimes someone will ask this question, so how's that going for you? You know, that, that thing that you say is so wonderful, that, that sin, that person you're involved with, that activity you're involved with, you know, that, that thing that sent you to jail, that thing that cost you your marriage, that thing that cost you your self-respect, that thing that cost you your reputation, that thing that you keep telling me is so wonderful, how's that going for you? Do you know that's exactly what Paul says in verse 21? What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? How was that working out for you? How was that working? What, what, what fruit were you producing when you were like that? What fruit were you producing when you were slaves to sin? You know those things that you're now ashamed of? And what does that imply about New Testament Christians? That there are things in our past when we were enslaved to sin that we ought to be ashamed of. But all the way back in the Old Testament, you see part of the problem was you've forgotten how to blush. You have forgotten how to be ashamed. Now we take our sin and we parade it in front of the world and say, hey, no big deal. Paul said, remember those things, those things you were ashamed of, those things you used to be enslaved to? Well, you're not anymore. Because through the grace and the blood and the sacrifice of Christ, you've been set free. But now that you've been set free from sin in verse 22, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So Paul says, so how's this working for you? It's working well. 
The stuff you were ashamed of was bearing rotten fruit. This good, righteous living is bearing good fruit. And he wants them to see the difference in this life. And then he says in verse 23, he shows these two options. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do you want this morning? You want, you want spiritual death? Or do you want spiritual life? Winning that war, fighting in that war. Only in Christ is the war won. But the call is to be at war. Be at war with your vices. Be at war with your sins. Struggle, strive against those things. In fact, the Bible tells us in James chapter 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and you might buy a little time. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, every little Texas kid grows up learning in school about the Alamo. And as far as I understand, the people in the Alamo did not hope that they would win. Right? Just buying some time. Just trying to hold off Santa Ana for a little, for a little while. They knew they were going to die. And can you imagine if this was Christianity? Resist, and you're going to die anyway, but maybe you'll buy yourself some time. No, can you imagine if the guys in the Alamo had had this promise? Hey, resist Santa Ana, and he'll, he'll flee. Well, you shoot a cannon at him, he'll, he'll turn tail and run. Yet this is what the Christians have. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Isn't it funny that we, we teach this even uh, in our day-to-day -day culture? Think about how we say this. You know this. If a big dog is chasing after you, what is the worst thing you could do? Run. Run. When you're dealing with a predator, whether it's a mountain lion or a dog or a bear, the worst thing you can do is run. He's going to catch you. He's going to eat you. He's going to bite you. What do they say you should do? Stand your ground and make yourself big. Make yourself large. I've told you before, I saw a man stand up to a over a ton bull elephant in Africa at a watering hole. He said, watch this, watch this. Ha, ha. He throws his arms up and, and that elephant stepped back and, 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 I, and he said, this is, you know, this is what you can do with, with that kind of intimidation. That, he was talking about the, the fear of man being in animals. But the Bible says you resist the devil and he'll flee from you. When he pursues you, don't run like a coward. Stand up like someone who's in Christ. Hey, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can resist you. I can overcome this temptation. I can be at war with my sin. And I'm going to win because I'm in Christ. I want you to think about the war that Jesus fought every day. Someone mentioned this in an article I read a couple of weeks ago. You realize this? That when Jesus was born and he grew up not only as God but also as man, did Jesus face temptations? How do you know? The Bible says so. But only those three, right? Those are the only three temptations Jesus ever faced, right? No, we know for sure. Because the Bible says the devil left him till a more opportune time. Till he was maybe a little weaker, a little more, more distraught. You know, until a better time. He's going to come and get him when he was a little, little bit more vulnerable. But you think about every day, Jesus Christ waking up, not, as a, not just as God, but also as man, waking up and being one sin away. From all of us being in a lot of trouble. Every single day. He was at war. With his own temptations. The Bible says he was tempted in every way as we are. Yet without sin. How many sins could Jesus have committed. And still been the sacrifice God required. 
None. He could say, well, you know, I'm so close. I'm 97% sinless. Every single day he woke up and fought against temptation so that we could go to heaven, so that he could be a perfect sacrifice. The Bible says, absolutely be at war with your vices. It says just the opposite about our neighbors though. It says be at peace with your neighbors. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, young man comes up to Jesus or a lawyer. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and behold, the lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? When I say the word neighbor, who do you think of? You, you think of the person who lives next door to you. It's not the way Jesus used the word. And in fact, it wasn't from his own countrymen, but he said, who's my neighbor? And so he tells him a story that we tell little kids about the good Samaritan. And if you understand the historical and the cultural background of that, the story has even deeper meaning. The man who got hurt, the man who got hurt, it's a Jew. The man who helped him was a Samaritan. Now, a lot of times we think of being a good neighbor as being the person who helps someone that we don't care that much about. Well, I'm not real crazy about this type of person, but I'll help them anyway. I'll be a good Samaritan. But do you realize the story has that flipped around? It's the hated being kind to the hater. And we don't do that very often. Sometimes we help people we don't like, but we don't often help the people who don't like us. Because okay? we feel pretty good about helping people we don't like. Well, I'm the bigger man. I'll, I'll help this person. But when someone mistreats us, oh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You slap me, I'll slap you back. I, I saw a t-shirt. I was looking at uh, uh, signs. We're talking about friendship in our class this morning. And it said, uh, you need to be scared because you've just hurt my best friend. And I'm, you know, I'm coming after you. You hurt me, you hurt my family, you hurt my friend. I'm coming after you. Yet in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who's your neighbor? Well, he's that guy that helps you even though you hate him. The person who gets outside of themselves. Verse 36, Jesus asked after he tells that story, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Go be a neighbor. What if my neighbor doesn't want to be friends with me? What if my neighbor doesn't want to be at peace with me? Uh, what if this person who hates me doesn't want to get along? Well, what does Jesus say? The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes to the church. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then we usually go just to verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Do you know I think the answer to that verse is in the preceding verses? How do we get along? How do we get along in a country where we have different ideas and different opinions? How do we get along in a church where we have some different views and, and different approaches? How do we find peace in that diversity? Look at the formula. Look at the recipe in those previous verses. Live in harmony with one another. Those of you who can sing, you know what harmony is, right? 
Harmony is not four voices all singing the same note. What's harmony? Different notes blending together. I told you about my brother-in-law, Troy, who recorded a song. He wanted to record it, and he sang all four parts. And he, he sang the soprano, the alto, the tenor, and the bass. And he said, you know, when I sang them separately, they sounded awful. Awful. But when you put them all together. I told you, I, I'll never forget the time they combined all of our bands, the woodwinds, the brass, the percussion. They put us all together. It was an entirely new sound. How do you find harmony among neighbors? How do you find harmony between a Samaritan and a Jew? You live in harmony. How do you find peace? You live in harmony. You blend those notes together. But it also requires humility. It says don't be haughty. Don't be wise in your own sight. Peace is other oriented. If you walk into a group of people and you're concerned about my way, you are going to be a peace breaker. This is the way things are going to be. It's going to be my way. I want to do what I want to do. It's going to be the way I want it to be. It says, don't be haughty. Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't be wise in your own sight. Don't think you're always right. Hey, try that out in marriage. Oh, it'll be peaceful. It'll be wonderful. Just tell your wife on the wedding day, by the way, I will always be right. I will always be correct. You will always be wrong. Now, why do you laugh, Judy? Why do you laugh? It's a recipe for disaster. So what makes you think it would work in the church? Why would you try it in the church? I'm right, you're wrong every time. It doesn't work. Don't be haughty, don't be arrogant, don't be wise in your own sight. It's a part of the peacefulness, the harmony, the humility, and then finally the honor. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. How we live matters. Our reputation matters. If you're going to be a light in the darkness. You want to cause a lack of peace for a congregation? Just drag your sin in this door and throw it on the floor and just let it grow. The Bible talks about sin in the church. It spreads like gangrene. That's not peaceful. Live in a way that's honorable. Live in a way that's honorable in the sight of all. When I grew up, there was a boss of a local business. And it made me feel so good as a teenager. He hired a couple of the teenagers uh, from the congregation. And he came and visited one Sunday morning and people were glad to see him. And he said, he looked kind of, of uh, self-conscious and he said, well, actually, he said, I'm here to see. He said, you got any more of those Christians? I want to hire some more of those Christians. I thought, that's, that's awesome. That those guys he hired made him want to hire more. Do what's honorable in the sight of all. When Jesus grew, it says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with all the people. In the book of Acts, it says that they were together day by day. They were sharing and, and they, they grew in favor with all the people. When we appoint elders, the Bible says they should have a good reputation with those outside the church. It's peaceful, isn't it? It creates peace. It creates harmony. It comes with humility. Live at peace with your neighbors. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 says, first of all, then I urge all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. Pray for our leadership. Pray for those in authority. And then he says, why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Do you know why? You know why that's important? Verses 3 and 4 say it's why, is, why it's important. This is good. Number one, that's a good environment to live in. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That's a second reason. 
He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's a third reason. When you have peace in a community, when you have peace in a nation, people can listen to the gospel. Have you ever seen two people fighting with each other? And they're both yelling at each other and nobody's listening? I, I won't look. <laughs> you both start talking. You're both yelling at each other. How much communication is taking place? If you are in a state of upheaval with your neighbor, if they're not listening to you and you're not listening to them, how much good is being done? Do you see it? See it on TV. See it on the internet. See it in the church. See it in our marriages. The Bible talks about living at peace with your neighbor. It's good. It's pleasing to God. And it allows an environment where the gospel can be taught. Instead of anger and division and frustration, live at peace with your neighbors. That doesn't mean the people who live next door to you. That may mean the people who hate you live at peace with them. Satan wants just the opposite. He wants us to be at war uh, with our neighbors and at peace with our sin. We'll finish in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, the third thing about being a better man each year. I saw a guy who runs a workout site and he said, look, for everybody who's going to make a New Year's resolution, you got to get this in your head. The following graph does not exist. And it had a graph and it had a line at the bottom and it said, this is where you are. And it had a line up here and it said, this is where you want to be. And it had a straight unbroken line. And he said, that doesn't exist. This, this perfect, nothing grows like that. People don't grow like that. Families don't grow like that. Nothing grows like that. Businesses don't grow like that. Churches don't grow like that. They're ups and downs. But you know, someone showed the other day when you take a, for example, you take the stock market and you take a couple of weeks time, you can make that say whatever you want it to say. But if you pull back and look at the big picture, it tells a very different story. People do it with temperatures, the climate. People do it with all kinds of things. They narrow it down so that you see just a piece of it. The Bible pulls back and it says you need to grow. It doesn't say that you fixate on the day. It says you grow. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 says, He's granted us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now here's the growth. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing or and are growing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are going to have some bad weeks this year, spiritually. Do you, know, you know that. I don't have to tell you that, right? You're going to have some bad weeks. You're going to have some bad days. It's going to happen. You may have a bad month. What is the goal? That when you stand, if the Lord should will, that we would stand in the first week of January of next year, that you are a better Christian then than you were now. And there is no straight line. It simply doesn't exist. Because we are not Christ. We're just his people. Okay? So do we give up? Well, if I can't have a straight line, I'm not going to try. 
If I, if I can't get rid of my, all of my sins this year, I'm not going to try. If I can't do it perfectly, I'm not going to try. That is exactly what some people do. They give up. They sell out. They cash in their position because of a bad month. And they're going to regret it for the rest of eternity. The Bible calls for growth. It calls for maturity. It calls for that upward, that upward call of Christ Jesus. You know, I'll never forget, I'd only been preaching for about a month and someone who didn't want to come forward for the invitation because they were too ashamed of the life that they had lived, they left a little card sitting up on the podium. And, and it said very simply, and I've got it back in my office, it said, I, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not even what I want to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. And that's the value of being at war with our sin. And that's the value of being at peace with our neighbors. That's the, the value of being a better man each year. Is that we are not what we were. Well, there's so much sin in this congregation that we fight against every day. But for those of us who are in Christ, we have hope. We have hope that we're not saved on the basis of our works or our perfection. But we're saved on the basis of the perfection of Christ. That his grace and his mercy are more than enough to lead us home to heaven. And so the question remains, if God has done all that for me, what is required of me? Well, some people will tell you nothing. Some people will tell you not much. The Bible will tell you everything you've got. Every ounce of your strength, every bit of your will, everything that you've got. And even then, you're not going to be perfect. But you will be Christ's. You will be in Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us of all sin. If you're not a Christian this morning, why? Why not? Is it because you're waiting until you get things together? It's never going to happen. Or are you waiting until you hear a different truth or a different gospel or someone tells you what appeals to you more? It's not going to happen here. You're going to hear the same thing day after day that only in Christ will you find salvation. Only by believing in his name, only by turning away from his sins and changing to a different way of life and being buried in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. And they said it in the first century on the day of Pentecost and will say it today. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If it was good on that day, it's good today. It's going to be in our Bible forever. God says he will forgive your sins. He'll give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He'll add you to his body, the church. And you can go home. You can have a home in heaven. And along the way, you fight, but you don't fight alone. You fight with the rest of the family of God. If you need to respond this morning, we offer you the invitation if you'll come while we stand and sing.